The willingness to say someone else can do this better than me is an act of leadership that marks the best players. The men and women that will be remembered the longest are the ones that let it go the easiest. Welcome to the Leveraging Success Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Gearhart. Every time we're together, we're here to bring you strategies to work less, make more, and with your margin, be an incredible parent, be incredible in the kingdom, be an incredible spouse. All of those things can work in tandem with the success that you're going to leverage from your career. Recently, I got to be with my mentor, Bob Shank. Bob Shank's the founder of the master's program. And as many of you know, I get to be a part of the master's program. I get to lead it as the CEO and coach it. It's an incredible organization. And Bob's been a mentor to hundreds of people, really many thousands of people. And you're going to get to hear a special discussion that we had in this bonus episode, an opportunity for you to hear about how can you do succession well? All right. Let's listen into this conversation together. I hope you enjoy it. For succession to work, it takes a strong amount of conversation, leadership, and someone with a vision with which to bring someone else along. And to be clear, Bob, you've helped me come along behind you. And it was a number of years ago where I told you that I would love to follow you, come behind everything that you've done. You blazed trails. You were the one that set up a platform by founding the master's program, building the intellectual property, creating relationships, and then building success of this program. God going with you and being behind everything that you've done, that allowing for a ministry to exist. And it's one that that's very important. And whether we're talking about the master's program, any church program, or any ministry that's out there, any organization, business even, everyone grapples with the question of succession. How do I pass this off? Does this work within the, the family structure? Does this work in a relationship? Who do I find? Is it build from the inside, buy on the outside? How do you make all those things work? Bob, we, we want to have this conversation together because you and I think we're having a level of success so far. And I am deeply grateful for the way you've brought me along in this. So maybe set up some of your thoughts because you were the founder and and this is your baby. To be clear, you birthed this and you gave me an opportunity to come along behind you. Could you tell me a little bit about some of your feelings around that and thoughts just as we're setting up this conversation for those who are listening? Jeff, my vantage point just says that I believe that every generation enters the stream of history believing that the world started with their consciousness and the world will effectively end when they breathe their last or when they retire to some beach somewhere, that we operate as if our lifetime is the only thing that matters. There's a shock that happens when we come to realize that we're not going to live forever, that our generation is inherently truncated in this flow of history and that an insensitivity to the generations that are behind us will result in us living lives that have no residual effect because what we've done will die with us. And if I'm just starting with a look at the scriptures, God's always talked about generations, but for whatever reason, 
I've just been living in this Christian community for the last 50 years and recognizing that conversation about generations doesn't happen much. We operate as if everybody's part of our cohort. And if they don't, they ought to act like it. And um, to come to realize that generations are by God's design and that succession is simply gazing reality with a 2020 view and saying, if what I've been doing is meaningful and if it should continue beyond me, getting my arms around generations and valuing and recognizing the continuing uniqueness of each wave of societal and kingdom history is to play in a very small way in the same world that God has always operated within. Bob, the I think if I'm thinking about who we have in our crowd and who would be listening to this and asking, how do you as a founder go through the thought process of handing something off with all the risk that's involved, all the potential of what could go wrong as much as what could go right. Could you speak to your thought process, just setting this up as someone that's done fantastically as a founder, originator, entrepreneur? How do you think about this when you start to look at your those that are coming behind you? How do you hand off? Well, what is your mindset with this that, that God gave you first? Well, it really comes down to whether or not I believe that I'm managing what God owns and has entrusted to me, or whether I have implicit or explicit ownership of what I do and the effect of what I do, and I have control over its start and finish, and that there, I have no responsibility to pass it along to people who are behind me in this generational flow. We started the master's program with a kind of an understanding that we were boomers serving boomers and our community was made up of people who were within our same age cohort. About 15 years ago, we started talking at the board level about the fact that it appeared that God was opening the door to successive generations who were beginning to benefit from what we were offering, but also had a a desire to be part of the delivery system to perpetuate it beyond our generational effective years. And the more we began to recognize at the board level that we all had expiration dates, whether we wanted to admit it or not, but we got honest about life and honest about our mortality and just said consciously and intentionally, we're going to plan succession rather than it being foisted on us when we can't avoid it, we're going to operate with an anticipation of it as a desirable, beneficial component of our future design. Bob, you know, we're going to talk about the biblical model for succession and we can make a case for that. You know, I was reading when Abraham was having his servant sent out to go find a wife for his son in this delicate moment where his wife's died his son doesn't have a wife yet. And the promise that God's made to come through for his son, he gets the servant, hey, put your hand under my thigh, and I need you to swear to do what I'm about to ask you to do. And so there's this intent that Abraham says, look, I know what God wants to happen here. He's made a promise. 
Now I need you that are coming behind me to follow through on these steps so that this goes the way it's supposed to go. You can go through through that to Solomon's son where it goes all wrong and everything in between. Could you tell us a little bit about the biblical model and why it's so important to be be thinking about this so that the good things don't die with leaders? I'm struck with the fact that as we read Matthew 17 and the Mount of Transfiguration, you and I have visited that spot in Israel together. And it heralds the story of Jesus, along with Peter and James and John, leaving the other nine apostles behind. And Jesus took them up onto that mountain. And when they got there, Jesus appeared in a very different form to those three guys. And along with him were Moses and Elijah. Now, there's all kinds. I mean, you could preach a month-long series on just that story, but it's striking for me to recognize that with Jesus and Moses and Elijah there in that conversation on that mountaintop, one of the distinguishing characteristics of those three leaders and their life missions was that in each case, they invested in a next generation leader who took the mantle from them and carried it into the future. For Moses, that was Joshua. For Elijah, that was Elisha. And for Jesus, it was the 12 apostles. And each of them operated with the belief that their successors were going to accomplish more than they did in their lifetime that their successors were not just going to manage the enterprise that they had launched, but they were in fact going to accelerate it into even greater, grander, wider, uh, more meaningful expressions than it had been true for them during their watch. And that wasn't a uh, competitive dismissal of their prominence or importance. In fact, they are elevated in biblical history as significant in their own generation, but across history. I think sometimes that it's tempting for leaders to believe that no one can replace them Mm. and that the temptation is there to almost sabotage the idea of someone who would come behind them and resist the idea that there is a successor whose tutelage will include the transfer of best wisdom from the person who preceded them. And that because of that, with the wind of God's spirit behind them and the confidence that they found their own lane, that God makes the results from the next generation's leadership even more significant. But in the meantime, the predecessors are not forgotten. They are still remembered and revered for the part that they played. Bob Shank, founder of Priority Living, now nearly 40 years ago, if I remember the time frame right, Bob, you were encouraged to start Priority Living by a couple of mentors of you. I'd love to hear that story. I don't know that everyone knows that story of of two mentors, and if I'm not mistaken, a fishing trip encouraging you to say, you should lead, you should step out. You form Priority Living, which becomes a Bible study to business professionals. 
and then its ongoing iteration that eventually led through all the way to what was formed as the master's program in 1997 and some of the history of that. Would you tell a little bit of that? Because I'd love to set that up as a, how do we go from one leader to the next leader in an organization? Would you tell that story? Well, I'll compress it greatly, Jeff. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's victory. And it wasn't uh, one crazy guy who was sending me off on a suicide mission, but it was a collection of older leaders whom I respected deeply. There were some guys like Mac McNair and Lauren Grissett, Chuck Swindoll, operating in successive engagement with me who were promoting me into trusting what God was already revealing in terms of giftedness and vision for me to go after my tribe, which was marketplace leaders, in a way that would be both fresh for the generation, which Mac McNair was an accomplished guy, a Air Force fighter pilot, a uh, instructor at the University of North Carolina in their business school, a candidate for governor at one point in Georgia, a a strategic consultant who I respected highly, a great communicator who could capture a room of men and get them standing at attention and marching in, in formation if he wanted to. But Mac made a deliberate determination to invest his time on younger leaders he told Bill Bright, with, who was a friend of his, that he was going to spend less time with him, helping him with Campus Crusade, and more time with guys like me, who were the next generation and ensuring Mac's legacy. Swindoll told me that despite my lack of seminary training, that I could communicate more effectively with business people than he could because I spoke their language and understood their paradigms, and Chuck didn't. Those were significant voices who were helping me to realize that perhaps it was not crazy for a guy with a high school education and a business license to, uh, after 15 years in the marketplace, shift gears and head into a career track in professional ministry that ultimately allowed us to minister to thousands of people in the marketplace in our earliest days but ultimately mature into what became the master's program. And um, I'm happily out of my leadership era, but I haven't retired. And the culture in its ignorance sees those as the only options. You're either working or you're retired. I've moved from leadership to investor status and I'm not retired, but I'm spending my time and taking the things of great value that I have after 50 years of marketplace and ministry leadership and pouring it back into leaders like you and leaders like the graduates of our program over the last 25 years and making what I have, wisdom, relationships, money, my uh, leverage of my brand and identity, I invest in people whose ministries and lives and missions I believe in to see the uh, multiple effect. Two are better than one because there's a good return for their labor. I'm getting to do that today. My frame of reference, Bob, I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan all growing up. I came out of the womb with a number 14 jersey on Pete Rose 
and great player. And you, everyone probably knows that story. But what vexes me about that story is that here he is, greatest, one of the greatest players of all time, hit King for sure, becomes the manager of the Reds, and then they can't succeed. They consistently hit second place year after year after year in the 80s. And so the bottom line is, is that you have somebody that's extremely capable that can't hand it off or take that success that they personally experienced and translate that into a multiplier to others. So Bob, here you are in a place where you've decided to build and and to go through that process, even though it's not your DNA, not someone that's got your last name. How do you think through that process and in helping others to sort of start to think of how do I find and build and support and grow that so that the the opportunity, even if it's not just one, it's several that you're trying to lead so that leaders replicate themselves. What do you do to try to put that in play and get it rolling so that it's successful? Jeff, while succession within a human family is certainly uh, credible and there are examples of it working well, it's not inherently superior. It's workable, but it isn't necessitated. It's we have the benefit of operating in more than a mystical family of God kind of a context. We recognize that we have people who are closer than family who don't share our DNA and that 23andMe has no idea who the people are that would give their lives for for me and me for them because uh, the relationship's founded on a common faith and given to the pursuit of similar objectives and missions and movements brings people together in a profound way. The truth is that there's a temptation when you're within a family system to think that the progeny has to somehow be a carbon copy of the founder before them. And nothing is more dishonoring to the creator than to think that he has to make multiples across generations. The combination of competencies that are required in each season of a movement or organization's life becomes very different. You've got a collection of competencies that I don't have. I have a collection of competencies that you do do not have. Mine happened to be just right for the part that I got to play in getting this movement up and rolling and investing a quarter century into the master's program model before handing it to you and to the team that you've brought around you. And the competencies that you and your team have are things that I watch and am in wonder of. I'm seeing how gifted God has made you and the other folks that surround you and recognize that if those gifts had been at the table 25 years ago, we wouldn't have had a use for them. We wouldn't have had a methodology or a means by which their contributions could have been maximized. But you've come at exactly the right time, and you've collected the the outcomes and the, the assets from this 25-year run-up of the master's program And you're putting those into a new formula and taking that forward, but the DNA is the same. And the willingness to say someone else can do this better than me 
is an act of leadership that marks the best players. The men and women that will be remembered the longest are the ones that let it go the easiest. Bob, I want to thank you so much on behalf of everyone for the way that you've modeled this succession process, you've executed it, and you've shown us how to live and lead in legacy. From whether I'm talking about my kids or maybe perhaps in the future, my kids' kids, I have a process by which I can see now modeled for me, how do I replicate myself and how do I work to raise them up? And then to think the same thing about how many more people can I get to come with me where I'm going to follow Christ in a deeper way, to find their life's calling, to know the mission that Jesus has called them to, and to range all of their life to make that happen? Thank you, Bob. Thank you for what you've done, pouring into me, pouring into thousands of leaders to see a replicated movement and that Jesus would be honored through that. I'm here to bet the farm on you and your team, Jeff taking us go forward. Bob, you're passionate about the Great Commission. And the master's program, what we've been setting everyone up to is arrange your life so that your career is in the highest integrity possible, that your family, your marriage, and your children are world-class, and that People come behind you and want to know, how did you do that? Because I see you doing all those amazing things and you've got these incredible initiatives in the kingdom space. I don't know how you've managed to do all of that. If you ask me, and and when I first met you, Bob, and you proposed that you could be great in your career, in your family, and in the kingdom, I thought, well, one of those three I can nail. The second one I can partially be in, and and a third one I'm going to outsource to somebody else because I can't do all of those, but you proved it. And the DNA of the master's program at the end of the day is to say, look at Jesus clarified the scope of what he's asked us to do in three things summed in the two great commandments and the great commission, love God, love people, make disciples, or teach other people how to love God, love people in this process. And the master's program, we're we're passionate about the Great Commission, and I know how much it means to you. You're on the forefront of everything with Sprint to the Finish, your long work with the Issachar movement, uh, Finish the Task, and, and beyond. You've been a leader in this. Can you speak a little bit to your passion towards that and how TMP is playing a role directly in the vision to see every people group reached with the gospel. At the end of the day, we've been helping folks get their arms around their calling. That's got a lot of sizzle. You don't have to be a Christian to want to know what your calling is. And I read the reports, as you do, of people who have retired out of a multinational corporation, and now they own a little art gallery in Cape Cod, and they say they've found their calling. Well, that's the culture's attempt to replicate something that God has custody over. Calling is about me finding my best contribution to the primary business of heaven on earth. And the the primary business of heaven on earth is to complete the work that Jesus came to start, that the redemption of lost people and the declaration of the gospel to every remaining people group are the business of God that it has a endpoint, a countdown clock connected to it. 
There are a lot of things that we do today to serve mankind and to perpetuate positive things. And I'm sure that most of the folks that are involved in our community do business that's desirable and beneficial and honest and highest integrity. But our business plans are not the delay point for the return of Jesus. In fact, all of the great faith-driven works of helping widows and orphans and drilling wells and building schools and addressing human trafficking and all of the things that are happening by Christians out to try and push back against the infusion of evil into the human experience. All of those are good things, but they will all be left unfinished when the Jesus returns moment occurs. That moment will come, according to Jesus, when the gospel has been carried to the last remaining corners of the world, where people groups have yet to hear that God loved them so much that he sent his son, that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, and that through the redemptive blood of the cross, they can be brought into forgiveness and life in the family of God. When that message gets around, Jeff, I believe that the two notable generations in human history will be remembered as the generation that took the baton from Jesus when he returned to heaven and the generation that finished the task of taking the gospel to the remaining outlying locations and peoples, the generation that got us started and the generation that gets us finished will be the two notable generations of biblical history. And I believe that we're living in the second of those. Great work that happened for 2,000 years. I'm not dismissing that at all. But I believe, and we've got credible evidence, biblically validated to back us up, to say that the conditions under which the return of the Lord Jesus could occur will be on the ground and provable within the next handful of years. I believe it's entirely possible that the end of all things may well happen on your watch. And I'm hopeful that I get to still be here and in a patriarchal way, still contributing to the energy that you all are generating, uh, raising up leaders for the kingdom, but that leadership more and more. And I love the fact that hundreds of master's graduates are participating in pressing the boundaries of the kingdom to the farthest reaches of human experience. And we will be ready to welcome Jesus back within the next few years. What are the things that uh, someone that have, have found themselves successful and want to arrange their life to do more towards this end? Could you put it into the find it, found it, fund it sort of mental model that we go through in the master's program to go after this and, and how could they do that? How could we invite them into more gospel work in some way? We've got hundreds, and I'm not over speaking here. We've got hundreds of graduates that have either started or have come and partnered and accelerated movements that are playing a critical role in pushing the gospel out to the furthest reaches. It's sort of like looking at a family reunion of folks that you're connected to and love. 
and asking, which is your favorite? I can't look across the sea of great men and women that are doing great things and say favorite. I was sitting in a board meeting for the Jesus Film Project 10 days ago, co-chairing that board with Kurt Hensley, one of our master's champions. I looked around that board table and over half of the current board, active board members for the Jesus Film are master's program folks. And uh, the Jesus Film has been called the greatest tool for evangelism in the history of the church. We've had over 600 million decisions for Christ from people who watched and responded to the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke portrayed in over 2,100 languages in which it has now been lip-synced with an audio track. I look at the uh, finishing fund with our dear friend and virtual master's grad, Doug Cobb, and again, dozens of master's program partners who are involved in that effort and working on the remaining unengaged, unreached people groups as our target for the finishing fund. We are down to less than 25 groups. And now that number was 3,500 groups just 25 years ago, but we're now down to less than 25 groups who have not yet seen their first missional penetration of outsiders bringing the gospel in and communicating in their mother tongue, their heart language, the good news of the gospel. We will have projects funded for those remaining 25 groups in the, in the next 36 months. And if history is any foreteller of the future, we'll have conversions within the following 30-month period so that in the next six years, we would expect that all of those remaining groups will in fact have names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And what, what John said in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, before the throne of God, people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, worshiping the Lamb, singing, holy, holy, holy. We're going to have that cast represented within the next six years. And God could wait a thousand years to bring Jesus back, but he won't bring him back one day before that's been completed. Bob, this has been a fun and enlightening conversation. Everything from the way with which the gospel is going out to those that haven't heard yet, to the opportunity to participate in that here in whether you're catching this through the show, uh, the podcast, the email, in the notes are some links and some references with which you can follow through and find out about ways with which you can participate, pray for, and give to those amazing, amazing places where this is going on. Also in the links will include the master's program, mastersprogram.org, as you may be wanting to consider ways to get involved. Maybe it's time for you to go through the master's program again, invite someone that's in your influence or family to join the master's program or to give to what we do as a nonprofit Christian ministry. Bob, I'm a benefactor of your pour in. I'm excited to have taken the baton with a crowd of great leaders alongside of me for us to rush forward and see to it that this generation takes this goodness and replicates it and that we would see leaders replicate leaders and a whole network of amazing gospel stories that we'll be celebrating forever. God bless you, Bob, and thank you so much for what you've done 
for me and for the thousands of other men and women that you've poured into. It's my privilege. All right. This has been a special opportunity for us to present to you the master's program. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. God bless you. We'll see you next time.